0: So last week, we got to learn about Paul's letter to Ephesians. And if you remember, if you can think of modern Turkey, on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, Ephesus was the capital of all that was east of that, which the Romans called Asia. In the book of Acts, we learn that while Paul is in Ephesus, teaching at the Hall of Tyrannus, that the gospel goes throughout all of Asia. That means east of there, an area called Phrygia, and then you've heard of Galatia, which we'll hear preached on next week with Dr. Kuntz as our guest. Colossa is sort of a city on the decline in that region, smushed within an area called the Valley of Lycus between two rising powers, Laodicea, which you heard mentioned in the chapter two reading, and another place called Hierapolis. At the end of the book of Colossians, Paul will ask that this letter to Colossa be read also at Laodicea and Hierapolis, which kind of begs the question, how does all of this hang together? So remember that after, excuse me, remember that while Paul is teaching in Ephesus, there are many people coming to him But as, again, it's being heard throughout all of Asia, there's at least one, if not several, disciples from Paul going east and planting churches in these other areas where they are hearing of Paul, but not seeing him face to face. Yeah, This work is probably, at least initially, done by a a man named Epaphras. And if you have your Bible in front of you and already open to Colossians, you can see that he is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, as the one from whom they learned the faith. But we learn from the book of Philemon that Epaphras and a few other people who they know, Demas and Luke, are with Paul in prison as he writes this letter to Colossus. Now, of course, with 18th century liberalism casting a shadow over everything. There's all sorts of debate about which and where and who and did Paul even write it? Let's just put that all to the side. It's very easy to see it all makes sense. After Paul leaves Ephesus, we know what he does. He goes down to Jerusalem and gets himself arrested. He spends two years in Caesarea under arrest before he's sent to Rome, where he is also under arrest for several years. It is likely that from Rome, hearing a variety of things about the churches to the east, he writes a couple of letters and sends them with Epaphras and Tychicus, particularly a man who is a letter bearer, to Ephesus and then to again Colossa, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, all as a big pile. So that these letters began to circulate right away, which you might think is how we get so many copies of them. So that eventually we have all the churches having copies of these New Testament documents. What's maybe lesser known is that this guy Tychicus, as he's going with the letter to drop off at Ephesus and then going on to Colossa, he's got this other smaller letter. And he's got this guy with him named Anesimus. Anesimus is a word. It means useful. Useful. Maybe you caught that in the, in the book, how Paul says he's no longer useless. Now that useful has become a Christian. And that is indeed what has happened. This man, is a runaway slave who has been converted to Christ through the ministry of St. Paul in Rome. Now, the moment I say the word slave, we Americans have all sorts of wrong ideas about slavery because, frankly, the British slavery, which took place on these shores hundreds of years ago, was a particularly nasty kind of it I don't know that slavery is ever really good in this age, but I do know that every time Paul opens one of his letters, he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. and I don't think he believes that that will stop at the day of resurrection. It is right to see ourselves as bond servants to Jesus and slave to Jesus, not merely as slaves, remember, also as sons and heirs more than slaves but in humility, recognizing our place that we are grafted in, not naturally born. This said, it isn't as though slavery was exactly free either. Onesimus broke the law when he ran away and the penalty under Roman law for runaway slaves is crucifixion. So for Onesimus to come back with Tychicus and this little letter to Philemon is indeed a fantastic risk on his part. And yet, as you heard read, Paul says to Philemon, look, man, you'd go to hell without me. So can you just do what I'd like and not kill this guy? See that he's your brother in the faith. See that it's better this way. For that reason, again, we include Philemon as a letter and in the sermon today to expose you to it as we're learning to read the Bible this year. It's a book that gets very, very little play. Ah, As you can, it's a personal letter. There's not a ton there. You would think in all of the work against slavery in this country, the Christians would have made more hay of Philemon than they did. But we'll leave that aside for now. You can see again that there is something far greater than the orders of this age at work in Christ among us. It does not undo the orders of this age, but it lets us see each other for who we really are. Again, heirs of the kingdom that is coming. In the meanwhile, in this little town of Colossa, which whether before or after Paul's writing, I don't know, but shortly in that time will undergo a significant earthquake and will never recover as a city. So it becomes a ruin by the end of the first century. At this time, there are still a great number of Jews living there, as well as Greeks who have converted to Christianity. So Jewish and Greek Christians are living together. They're having their ideas come and go. And we find, not so much that we've seen it taught somewhere, but in what Paul teaches against, that something new is showing up. Something we don't really see argued about in the other books of the New Testament as much, but which will become a particularly thorn in the flesh of the church by the second and third centuries. Scholars today call this big thing Gnosticism. That's just the Greek word for love of knowledge or the worship of knowledge. But it's not really about knowledge. It's about the idea that there is a secret knowledge, a secret trick, a way of doing things that if you know it, after you die, when you enter into the spirit realm and have to begin climbing through layers of spirituality from the weaker spirituality to the final great Let's just call it nirvana for now. It's not quite the same, but it's the idea, right? As you climb your way up, you're going to be tested. And if you don't have the right knowledge, the right passwords, I mean, it's not quite right either, but it's kind of like that. Well, then you'll just get stuck at a lower tier of heaven. This idea runs so contrary to the Bible on many, many levels that Paul doesn't waste any time writing this letter to deal with it. Now, the primary problem with this teaching is that it believes you're going to die, you're going to leave your body behind, and you're going to spend the rest of forever as a spirit climbing into higher spirituality. When we know that the mystery of Jesus that has been revealed is that when you die, you're not going to stay dead, and that your spirit that rests with Christ already seated at the right hand of authority now Not later. You, now, you will be brought back to this body on the last day, put inside of it, and made imperishable. So hopefully right there you can see the black and white of the issue and how different this is. But there's another really horrible underbelly to this. Why do they believe that they're always going to climb upward in spirituality and leave this world behind? Because they believe this world the world of matter, the world of stuff is evil by nature. We believe when we call ourselves naturally sinful and unclean, that we have corrupted our nature, but not that it was created corrupt. And that is again what the Greeks believe and teach according to their philosophy. They see, as Plato teaches, that everything in life is not as it should be. So there must be a place where it's as it ought to be and that's not the material world. And the material world is an accident brought about by a weak and backwards God who didn't know what he was doing, and so trapped you, a part of eternal spirit, in material decay. And in order to escape that again, you must have the correct secret knowledge. Well, can you see how this might cause some trouble? with the idea that the everlasting son of God has incarnated himself in this flesh for eternity? Indeed, that is what they will end up denying in Gnosticism. Jesus is not God become man forever, but a higher angel who descended to appear as a man in order to teach you to stop being one and become a spirit yourself. If you want the modern version, it's called Mormonism. Now They very much teach the same set of ideas under different words. Colossians as a book is written to make sure you understand that Jesus is not an angel, nor is he merely the appearance of something, but he is God in the flesh. And we heard that read in chapter 2. We're going to look at it in chapter 1 and 2 here directly. So if you've got your Bible, I do ask you to find the book of Colossians. It comes after Philippians and before, oh, I should know this off the top of my head, before First Thessalonians, how much does that help? Find Romans and start going east of Romans about four books. And you'll find it right in there. Uh, Colossians, we're going to pick up, look at verse 7 in chapter 1. Just make sure you see how it says, Epaphras, our fellow servant. Remember, he's one who is with Paul in Rome, who had planted this church. So right away, Paul's saying like, hey, guys, remember you don't know nothing without us. (laughs) And so what we say is the real thing here, yeah? Um, Rolling down though to verse 15 is where I wanna pick up. Verse 15 through 20, uh, we looked at it last service as well for those of you watching online. This is what scholars call, and I think they're right, the great Christological hymn of Colossa. That is, this is more than just Paul writing an idea. If you look at it in the Greek, it's poetry, it's it's a song, it's utterly beautiful. Uh, it also will lift up the highest language in the Bible about Christ being God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All right, first off, how do you have the image of something invisible? Hmm? It's about as hard as having three persons who are one substance. And I would tell you that's actually the answer to the riddle. Right? That he, visibly the son, manifests what eternally the father is. And that as much as you can't wrap your head around that, you can be grateful that he has stooped down to you and said to you that this is who he is. And recognize that you as a substantial, as a tangible person, need a tangible God. And so here he is in your midst, not only to be seen, but to bind you to himself, as we will see. It calls him the firstborn of all creation. Make sure you understand this then, not as the son of God eternal, but the son of God made son of David. So that Jesus, born in the middle of history, nonetheless is the firstborn of us all. I said it before, the one who comes after me is before me. Yes, he is the firstborn of us all as a man. Then, by him, before this, all things were created. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Those are key words for layers of heaven that the Gnostics would teach you. You would have to climb through in order to get to the great peace of nirvana. Thrones, dominions, powers, and that's where all the passwords come in. Paul says, whatever that nonsense is, maybe some of it's true. There's certainly powers and angels and principalities. Whatever it is, he made it. And he is the image that is above it all. You might hear in this bit our critique of the Roman Catholic cult of the saints, where they will pray to various saints and angels, asking them to pray to Jesus for them. And we say, Jesus is the one who made all those things and he wants you to pray to him. Why would you go to someone else? And Paul will imply later that when you do, when you go to some other power, you don't worship God, you worship demons. Uh, We'll come to that hopefully when we find the text. Going forward though, Christ is over all these things for they have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is, this is a second thing, firstborn of creation, firstborn of the church. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means first again. For, verse 19, more of this God in flesh language, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians one fifteen through twenty, the great Christ him, again in which we see he is the first man created, even though he's in the middle of time, he's the first new man. More than that, he also is the firstborn of the resurrection, raised from the dead. But this only occurs because as the God become man, he also dies on the cross. At some point, you really do have to recognize that Christianity never comes along and says, hey, we've got a really reasonable idea to try to convince you of. That's not what we're saying. There is understanding, but it's not like this all just makes sense. That there is a God who became man and we killed him? This doesn't make sense. And yet when you believe that it simply happened, the understanding it brings to the rest of the crazy of the world is quite illuminating. It sheds a light on how upside down we are. When you realize that the greatest truth that there is doesn't make sense to you, it can help you start to question all of your assumptions and all of your pride. And all of your, that doesn't make sense, I must be right. Because in fact, you know, you're so often not. Moving forward, I want to get a lot more of this text today and we're already well into our time. Uh, In verse 21 through 29, he will emphasize the reconciliation. This is that we were far off, but have been brought near again. That's Paul's language from Ephesians. We who were alienated from God, broken in our relationship with God have been bound up to God again in Christ. Verse 24, excuse me, 21, he says that you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The reason the crucifixion of Jesus doesn't make sense to the unbeliever is because the natural man is hostile in mind to God, alienated from God. But Even so, he is risen. risen. Alleluia. Verse 22, he has reconciled, that's brought back together in his body of flesh, that's his dead body on the cross, by his death, says it right there, in order to present you, plural, but you're always included individually in the plural, in order to present you holy, that's set apart, and blameless, that's without any flaws. And above reproach, that means no one can accuse you before himself. If indeed, since indeed, we and you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news, he is risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which Paul is a minister, yeah? So see how the hope of resurrection is at the heart of everything Paul proclaims, but the hope of resurrection is bound up in the idea that he wasn't just a man who died and rose, but that it was God who died and rose. And herein, maybe you can find a little bit of wisdom. If the eternal son of God, had come down to earth and saved, uh, to save us without becoming a man. How could he have died? He was not subject to death as the eternal Son of God. In fact, to our knowledge, there would be no way for him to die. But by joining himself to our flesh, he enabled himself to take our burden, our curse, death, onto his own body, and absorbing it, taking it all in, he also showed that since he's God in that body, well, it wasn't enough. He couldn't stay dead because he was God. So he becomes man to die, but he is God and cannot remain dead. And therein is Christianity. Therein is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which causes Paul then in verse 24 to say that I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's profound. I rejoice in my sufferings. How? Because he knows that every suffering in this life is like Christ's suffering on the cross and that for the joy set before him, he endured it knowing what came later would be greater. So Paul is willing to sit in prison and even lose his life in martyrdom, certain that there is no loss, but that there is gain in death in Christ. And doubly so the resurrection comes with more eternity than you can imagine. And so plenty of time to have your best life then, even though your best life now includes much suffering and affliction for the sake of the church. He calls himself a minister and a steward of this in verse 25, this verse 26 mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. If you skip down to chapter 2, verse 2, We heard this read, you'll see it talks about God's mystery. So this mystery that's hidden is now revealed. And what is it? Verse two of chapter two, God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he emphasizes this, that it's in Jesus, the man himself, so that no one, verse four, may delude you with plausible arguments. All right. So he's going to mention in in verse eight, I think we're going to go past that part this morning, also philosophy and empty deceit. The idea here, again, is what I said a moment ago. If you come to Christianity with a skeptic's stick, with a ruler of measurement, wherein you're going to force God to compel you by reason to come to his side, you're gonna find that God just doesn't have time for you or care. In fact, he'll just say, fine, go to hell then, if that's what you want, since you're only interested in your own empty deceit. And so also Christians, when you engage the world, don't expect the natural people around you to find what you believe to be normal or even true. Expect them to think you're crazy, expect them to think you're evil, because they are trapped in empty deceit and plausible arguments. Have you ever been in one of those conversations with someone where you say something and then they argue about like 1 18th of what you said that wasn't really what you said, but was some smaller thing, like maybe you got the date wrong or something. And then they go off on that and they say, see, you're an idiot, you're wrong. You ever been in one of those? Uh, You'll find them online all the time. Plausible arguments. It seems to make sense. It sounds good at first strike. Don't be deceived by such things and know that that's the way the world works. If you're concerned about the current zeitgeist of our age, the stories being told everywhere about this and that and worry and worry and fear and fear, lots of plausible arguments, very little substance, very little substance. We have the substance who is Jesus Christ himself. Again, God made visible to die and rise unequivocally, before the entire world, yes? And we don't want to miss what it says about that a little further down. Let's look down at chapter two, verse 11, and we're gonna follow there up to verse 15, where it says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, before I tell you that that's baptism, because the next verse says that's baptism, let's just deal with circumcision and how it's an awkward metaphor. Yeah, it's not the most mm, YouTube-friendly kind of thing to imagine that there's a part of the body with a little extra skin on it, and God said to Abraham, your son's going to have this, cut it off, and always do that. And this will be the sign that from you, the Messiah will be born. There's also something quite profound in recognizing that it's through the progenation, through the procreation of men, son to son to son, that Jesus will indeed be born of a virgin eventually, right? So the circumcision of Abraham is a sign of exactly what's going on. But now Paul is saying that this we have now is different. The circumcision of the flesh is what was done to Hebrew boys at age eight and many American boys in the medical industry. But the circumcision of the heart is a completely different matter. So now imagine for a moment that when you were born, you had around your heart a really crusty callus of stony flesh. And this crusty callus of stony flesh on your heart prevents you from simply trusting in God. So that everywhere you go, whenever there's a problem, your first answer is me. I must, I shall, I will. That is the uncircumcised natural man who thinks that whatever God gives you, it's up to you to fix it and change it. Now know that when you are born again of the spirit of God with your eyes open to see that Jesus is for you and not against you, that stony flesh around your heart has been stripped away and your heart beats with the living truth that God again is on your side. So that you, like Joseph of old, no matter what comes your way may say, it was meant for evil by those who did it, but my God always means it for good. Or like St. Paul in Romans chapter eight, you can say that all things work for the good of those who are in Christ. So that neither height nor depth, angel nor ruler, principality, power or otherwise may segregate us from our God. Indeed, as death could not contain Jesus, so death shall not contain you. And this is emphasized again in the very next verse where it tells you that you have been buried with Christ In baptism, Colossians 2, verse 12. I'm going to take a moment to talk to the Baptists online. It's in the Bible, guys. It's right there in the Bible. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which baptism, you were also raised with him. How? By the water? That's not what it says. Through faith, it says. Through faith in what? The water? No. Through faith in the fact that Jesus said, do this with the water. Oh. Oh. It's about what Jesus, yes, it's about what Jesus said. It's about how when you're baptized, he says to you, you're mine now. If the one place in history where God singles you out to say to you, you're mine now, you say it doesn't count. I got nothing else to give you. I really don't. Through faith in the powerful working of God, it's not man's work, who raised him Christ from the dead. Verse 13, you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. It's got more good stuff in that verse, but notice how made alive is not a future tense. It's not about what's going to happen. It's about what has already happened. It's one of the hardest things to keep at the center of your Christianity. But it's the fact that you're already raised from the dead. You're already immortal according to your spirit. That's why when you die, you will go to heaven and not to perdition. It's not because heaven is your home. The hymn's wrong. It's not. Heaven is where you will wait with Christ until he puts you back in your new body on the last day. But all that way, you never actually die. Your body does, but you don't. Yea, though you die... Yet you will live, as Christ says in the book of John. Yeah? So, God has already made you alive with Christ. Rest of the verse, verse 13 in chapter 2. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, forgiveness of sins, how? Verse 14, great verse. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This... God set aside nailing it to the cross Ugh. in the body of God himself with his blood streaming down everything you have thought done or will do that is incomplete insufficient or straight up wrong pierced Jesus with all the wrath of God and is sufficiently covered the debt is paid for that's The good news. He is risen. risen And again, I contend that while if you want to argue with me about it, I'll never convince you. If you will let your heart break for half a second, see your own weakness and the goodness of God in the story itself, the glimmer of faith that will awaken, will tell you this is no story. This is no myth. This is what all the other stories and myths wish they had. A real God who knows what man really needs. Verse 15 somewhat leads into the next section, wherein we see more of this Gnostic thing coming about, this worshiping of angels and powers and trying to climb our way through pantheons. Before he talks about that, he just says they all got disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This isn't Caesar. This is angels and archangels and all these other things that followed the devil. He disarmed them and put them to open shame. Where? In the cross. What's the devil trying to grab? Somebody tell me. What's the devil trying to grab? What's he want? Hmm? Us. What's he want over us? Power. The devil wants power. And he's convinced you in your flesh to believe the answer to all your problems is power. What's the cross? Weakness. How does Christ triumph over power? Weakness. It's called grace. It's called grace, yeah. To open shame so that the devil has nothing to cling to now. Even if he climbs to the highest level of the prince of this age, which he has done, it does him no good. Because this age died in Christ. And Christ is risen with a new age in his body. And only those put into that body will come with him, of which the devil does not get a ride. But in this Lord's Supper... You do, oh, you surely do. Therefore, verse 16 through 19, a little bit new here. We didn't talk about this at the first service. Important stuff though. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is about how this proto-Gnostic group of Christian-ish people in Colossae were adapting elements of the Old Testament law as if you needed to keep it in order to be saved. Things like calendars for festivals and how you keep the Sabbath and yada, 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 yada. He says all of it pointed to Jesus. He's fulfilled it all now. And if you are going to go and seek these things, you're actually seeking a false religion. Verse 18, it will disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. All right. Asceticism. Hard living, right? You're not really a Christian unless you give up this and that and this and that. Now, to be sure, not all things are good for you. And there are things that are evil that we should not do. But it's not about walking around saying, woe is me. It's not about never enjoying life or having a feast. And yet that is what some will teach, that unless you're austere and suffer, you can't be a Christian. And then also with it, the worship of angels. Don't miss that the moment you worship an angel, you're worshipping a demon. Straight up. That's what's happening, yeah? Don't be deceived by those who teach you to do such things. And then, right there with these things, going on in detail about visions. I teach this every time I teach it. I don't want you to miss it. We have no more new prophecies. Nobody among us will be given the Holy Spirit of God in order to proclaim visions. All of that existed from the apostles as a sign to the Jews that the gospel was leaving them and going to the Gentiles. If such things ever exist again, they would only exist amongst the Jews. That hasn't happened though. It all passed away within the first hundred years. And we found out shortly after that the best heretics... The ones who get the most people to follow them, guess what they always have? Visions and sometimes miracles. Not kidding. Matthew 24, Jesus will warn that when false teachers come, they will come with signs and wonders. So the mark of Christ's church is to recognize that with great power and wonder, he indeed did come. And the apostles were given signs for the world to be displayed that could never be ignored. But now that that has happened, what remains is baptism and the holy meal. Things that look so plain, so simple, who could believe it? He is risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> before the eyes of faith unfolds the power of God's word to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So that when you receive these gifts in faith, visible signs of the holy God who is incarnate in flesh and now putting himself into these things, it is more, uh, more than a miracle. Yeah? For your faith itself sees what men cannot believe. Yeah? <clears throat> when you do not hold to Christ the head, you will inevitably seek some other form of sign. And that again is the danger. But what we want is together, bound up in Christ to cling to him as our head. More of that a little bit later, I think. I think for the sake of time, we're gonna have to jump ahead. So uh, let's jump ahead to chapter three, verse five, where he does begin to exhort us. He begins to say that there is an old way of life that you were born into, and there is a new way of life that faith receives for free, but faith does act upon, right? Reception and grabbing are the same word in Hebrew. Can can you follow me on this? If if I give you something, you're also taking it. And it all kind of depends on what your perspective is. And I would hope that when Jesus dangles out eternal life to you, you seize it. You say, absolutely, amen, hallelujah, I believe this thing, yeah? And this is what we're going to be encouraged to do here in the following section, where it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Porneia, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Ah, I can't ignore it. Chasten us not, Lord, in your hot displeasure. If there is a problem with these here, United States of America, it is because we have involved ourselves in abortion and pornea and all manner of evil in God's sight. And any nation which decides to make a living on such things can only expect fire to come. The most amazing thing of all is that it is not as if God has to send fire from heaven every time. In history, if you study it, the people just do it to themselves. Folly tears her own house down. Put that to death in your own heart. Because you don't want the wrath of God to come upon you. In fact, verse 7 says, In these you once walked, when you were living among them, verse 8, but now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse nine, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old man, (laughs) it says self there in the ESV, it's man in the Greek, put off the old Adam, mm, uh, lost my place, with its practices, Verse 10, and have put on the new Adam, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who's the image of your creator? Jesus of Nazareth, crucified for you. That's the knowledge your new man is being renewed in. And here in him, all that you were before doesn't matter, Greek or Jew, that's your cultural heritage, yes? Circumcised or uncircumcised, that's your former religious practices. Barbarian, Scythian, that's actually like you're uneducated and gross, right? Slave or free, what's your status in the world? It doesn't matter. Jesus Christ for the Christian is all in all. Verse 12, put on then, he just talked about putting off the old man, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Humility, meekness, and patience. What's that look like? Verse 13, bearing with one another. I have the opportunity to talk to lots of people who are not Christians. And whenever I do, they always want to tell me about how hypocritical the people who are at church are. They don't like to go to church because people at church think too highly of themselves. They look down on everybody else. They think that their way is the only way to do it. And usually when they say that to me, I say, you know what, you're right. There's a lot of hypocrites at church. There's two kinds though. There's the hypocrites who don't know it. And then there's the hypocrites who know it. That's the kind that go to my church. We don't like our hypocrisy, but we confess it. The antidote to hypocrisy in the church is to remember that whenever you see another hypocrite in the church, it is your task to bear with that person. Hmm? That doesn't mean you let them do what they're doing. Maybe it's quite evil and you must stop them that moment. That's true. But nonetheless, you do it as a brother or you do it as one who sees the weaker who needs to be lifted up. So bearing with each other is the substance of love. Don't come to church and expect everybody to be the way you like. Don't expect the way we worship to all flow the way you want it to. Don't expect paradise to show up. It's not here yet. And that's why we're here to be reminded that in him, these things are coming and our hope is the deposit of that. Yeah, the proof of that. Verse 13 again, then bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has, notice the past, already done, forgiving you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There are two more sections to the book. I'm not going to go through the first one verse by verse, but I want you to skim over and see. Uh, that from chapter 13, chapter 3, verse 18 through 4, one, you have a reflection of what we heard in Ephesians 5 and 6 last week, where he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, particularly fathers and children, and then masters and slaves. This is what we can call a table of duties or a description of the orders of creation. While all of us are to bear with each other and in any given moment be ready to submit to another for the sake of peace and unity in the word, nonetheless, the life we live is set with certain realities that aren't gonna change. No matter what you wanna say or do, a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl, a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and marriage is when man and woman put their parts together and make babies. This isn't going away. It's not going to change. And just because we've learned the goodness of freedom in Christ, it's not about anarchy and doing whatever you want. And so you are encouraged, wives, to submit to your husbands because this is pleasing to God. And you are encouraged, husbands, to watch out lest you embitter your wives for this will hinder your prayers. Children, you are encouraged to obey your parents even when you disagree because you're not obeying them, but Christ. Parents, you are encouraged to not exasperate your children, recognizing that they must be their own people too, taking ownership of their own heart and mind. You cannot control them forever, but must set them free. And the same is said at length to masters and slaves here. Think of it as workers, employees, somewhere in life you have a master wherever that person is, man, woman, whatever, seek to please them knowing that you serve Christ. And if you do have that authority yourself and the one under you doesn't do as good a job as you want, remember how poor a job you have done being a Christian before God and show mercy downward to those who you have under you. To close then this morning, let's look at chapter four, verses two through six, where he encourages you, to continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it. That's in prayer. And I promise you, praying the Psalms will keep you watchful in prayer. They might even wake you up a little bit. Whoa, what's that say? Oh my. Huh? Stay watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, he says, pray also for us. Remember, he's in prison. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which he says, I am in prison. Now, honestly, what should you do with that? If you're not praying for me, Jonathan Fisk, your pastor, weekly, please start. I have a lot of opportunities you will never have. You pay me to be that guy. To be ready at any moment to talk about this stuff. But I am just a man. And I carry a great deal of fear in my life. I'll tell you about it. You ask me sometime. I'm afraid of almost every person I talk to. It's strange, but it's real. Pray for me. I don't want that to ever get in the way of St. Paul Lutheran Church. And I certainly don't want it to get in the way of running into somebody out there in Rockford who just needs to hear about the grace of Jesus Christ. So as you continue to ask, how can you speak the word of Christ more in your life? If that scares you too much, if you say, pastor, I could never hand a sons of Solomon booklet to anyone. Great. Then start praying for me, that my mouth would be open, that a door would be given to the word in the lives of the people that I run into, that I may make it clear, verse says, which is, verse four says, which is how I ought to speak. Verse five, for you again, then walk, In wisdom toward outsiders. Visitors to your church are not insiders. They're outsiders. They don't belong. It won't make sense to them. How do you welcome them? How do you guide them in? How do you show them that although it is different here, it is holy. It is set apart. It is true. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer each person. I'm pretty sure when he says to have your speech seasoned with salt, he doesn't mean carry salt around and kind of spit it out everywhere you go. Uh, I'm pretty confident that it's a lot like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are the salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world. And this not of yourselves, but the gift of God, not by works, but a gift of grace through faith lest you boast in yourself, but in order that you boast in Christ your God. And so again today, members of the body, called out of darkness into light, built up and knit together. You do not do this on your own, but as you receive what he gives, descending to enter into and be this bread and wine for you. Light in the darkness, salt in the decay. So that each of us going out our separate ways this week, just like I talked about last week, trailing the glorious blue rays of the helmet of salvation wherever we go. And you walk into whatever place. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. My sister, my, uh, my daughter and I, I took her into Spencer's Gifts in the mall. Don't take your kids into Spencer's Gifts in the mall. But but as I was in there, a haunt of demons with... um uh pentagrams and witchcraft and all sorts of stuff everywhere around it i did have to stop and realize they're afraid of me they're afraid of me and that's what this meal promises you the demons flee the light opens in the name of jesus